Barring any major unforeseen circumstances, we now know that this year's general election in the United States is going to be between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. That's right, folks. Even in the midst of the coronavirus, we still have a general election coming up this year. In today's episode, I'll profile what I expect to be the major narratives of both sides, possible election outcomes, and some variables to watch as we approach the 2020 election. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome once again, podcast listeners, to another stimulating and thrilling episode of Blind Politics. This is Dr. A.J. Nolte from Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent either those of Regent University or the Robertson School. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, I think we have Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast provider might be. Also, a reminder that you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, and Twitter at BlindPolNulty. Social media game has not been very active for us thus far. That may or may not change. We're looking at some possible applications of that in the future. And at the end of this episode, I want to announce what I hope are going to be some, some changes to Blind Politics moving forward in terms of the, the type of content that we're going to be looking at moving forward. So I suspect, like me, most of you are probably stuck at home, uh, engaging in some form of social distancing, and you're probably just a little bit stir-crazy at this point. And if you are, I can sympathize with that. I think everyone is going to be going stir-crazy by the end of this thing. But fortunately, we are going to keep the podcast rolling here at Blind Politics. Faithful producer Kylan is going to be braving the, the elements and whatever other dangers might lurk out there to make sure that these things get produced and get released on time. And I'm going to be recording them, which is actually the easy part. So as we are looking at things kind of moving forward, I, I think I'm probably not going to spend a lot of podcasts talking about the coronavirus itself. We've done two on it. If something major changes, if there's a, if there's something major that changes that has political science implications, okay, not talking about epidemiology, I'm not an epidemiologist, and I'm a big believer that when you're a social scientist or an academic, you should stay in your lane as much as possible. My lane is politics, particularly religion and politics, so sometimes that goes into a little bit of theology, a little bit of history, that kind of stuff. I'm not a hard science guy, I'm not an epidemiologist. If you want good information on that, check WHO, check C uh, CDC. You know, there are good sources out there. So we're not really going to cover it unless there are major political science implications moving forward. And, you know, if there's popular demand for that, we might do another podcast. My plan is not to do that because there are other things that are still going on. Some of them are impacted by coronavirus. For example, I may do one soon on Israeli politics. I may do something on what the heck is going on with Iran. We don't know, but there are potential permutations for that. I may do something else that touches on coronavirus that looks at why authoritarian regimes are dangerous to all of us in times of public crisis like this. So those are just a couple of podcasts that might be tangentially related to this, but we're not going to talk about main COVID-19 too much. So today what I wanted to do is the sort of second half of the promised uh, episode that we were going to release, you know, we released the first half, of course, on, on Tuesday, which is just about COVID-19. Today, I want to talk about the election. Because since the last time we talked about American electoral politics, 
we now have immensely more clarity on what this is going to be. Barring unforeseen circumstances, barring something major and catastrophic happening, we now know that the 2020 general election is going to be between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Septuagenarian slugfest is on. Okay, you can look forward to whatever else is happening. Whatever social distancing, quarantine, economic recession, any of that, you can look forward to two old guys yelling at each other for at least an hour and a half, three, uh, three times during the presidential debates. And personally, I want as many presidential debates as possible because as I'm about to discuss, I think this election has the potential to be one of the most entertaining elections in American history just because of who Trump and Biden are. Okay, but that's what we're looking at. That is the general election matchup that we are looking at. Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And so what does that mean? I'm going to skip for now the implications of what that means for the Democratic Party moving forward, because a lot of that really depends on whether Biden wins or loses. I personally think that, that Democrats may be in the same cycle as Republicans, but may be in what I would call their Mitt Romney phase. What I mean by that is in 2012, you saw that the, to a certain extent, the party still got its man in the GOP. But that may have been the last time that happened. Certainly, the party did not get its man in 2016. The preferred candidate of the party was probably one of Jeb Bush or Scott Walker or later on, maybe Marco Rubio. It was certainly not Donald Trump. Okay, so the party in the Democratic Party for 2020 has gotten its man. And whether they're able to do that again in the future really depends on whether they win. Romney was the party's guy in 2012. Romney lost. And that weakened the remaining stronghold that the Republican Party institutionally had over its voters. Okay, the Democrats are going through a similar process. And if they don't win this time, it's going to be much harder to control the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party in 2024. Probably not Bernie Sanders as the nominee. Probably someone else will come forward as the standard bearer of that left wing social democratic socialist populism. But if they don't win in 2020, it's going to be really hard for the Democrats to tamp that down next time, particularly given that if Trump wins in 2024, you're going to be looking at an epic clown car in the Democratic primary. So those are just a couple of factors to keep in mind on the Democratic side. One podcast that I'm mulling for the future in terms of thinking about future ideas for podcasts are policies and their unintended consequences. One of the unintended consequences, I would say, of campaign finance reform has been the rise of populism and the decline institutionally of parties. So campaign finance laws that were designed to get money out of politics have actually incentivized and made it easier for rich people to take part in the political process. Why is that? Well, because you've taken things out of the hands of the parties and put them in the hands of these outside organizations. So everybody on the left wants to sort of blame Citizens United and say this is where it started, but you're not looking back far enough. You're not looking at the 527s and the role they played in 2004 and 2008. And we probably need to have a conversation as a country about whether weakening the institutional parties was a good thing and whether these campaign finance laws have not had perverse unintended consequences, right? So that is a podcast that we're going to discuss in the future. Spoiler alert, I think that yes, they have. And I think that we need to seriously consider removing the restrictions on the party's ability to fundraise. Because when you take money out of the hands of the parties, and when you take money out of the hands of the of institutions, then you put it in the hands of non-institutional actors. And then you start to get some forms of crazy populism. It's not the only factor, but it's one of the big ones. So uh, those are things for future podcasts. For now, I want to talk about the election. What does an election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden look like? First of all, as I mentioned above, it's going to be entertaining as heck because the fun thing about Trump and Biden is that they both essentially have the same huge flaw as candidates, which is that they cannot stop talking. 
And when they talk, oftentimes they're talking about things that are completely irrelevant to what they should be talking about. So you've got two kind of old populist-ish. I mean, Joe Biden's not a populist, but he's he's sort of in that, that stylistically. I don't want to say stylistically he's the same as Trump, but he's a big talker. He is a storyteller. He will tell you stories that he doesn't really care if they're true or not. He is, as you know, we're, we're recording this the day after St. Patrick's Day, so Joe Biden is full of blarney. He's full of malarkey, as a, which is a term that he liked to use a lot in, in 2012. Well, he can say no malarkey all he wants, but malarkey is pretty much Joe Biden's stock and trade. All right, so you put him against Donald Trump, who, you know, has, a, I would say, a fairly similar approach to the truth and to the facts and all that kind of stuff. And we are looking at a very, very entertaining election for those of us who aren't particularly invested in either candidate. It is going to be astonishing. Fact checkers are going to have bleeding fingers keeping up with the Trump-Biden debate. Saturday Night Live is not going to be able to spoof this. They're going to just have to play clips of it. I'm anticipating at least one half an hour derail where Joe Biden talks about a trip that he made to one of Trump's casinos in the 70s. And just we're going to be we're going to be down all kinds of crazy rabbit holes in the debates. So I hope there are at least 10 of them because, you know, if this if this coronavirus quarantine continues, there might not be much else to watch on TV. So that will at least be entertaining. Is it necessarily good for the country? Ah, you know, I don't know. Would I prefer politicians who are going to give us the straight truth? Yes. But that doesn't seem to be something that voters are interested in or have been interested in for quite some time. So, you know, we get what we get. And uh, at a minimum, the debates are going to be worth watching. What else can we say? I think that elections for me, are one based on the story that you tell the electorate and whether you get the electorate to believe that story or not. Okay? You don't win an election without a consistent, coherent narrative. And I know a lot of political professionals will say that's not the most important thing. It's all about ground game. It's all about this. It's all about that. It's all about the quality of the campaign, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, I get that. From a micro level, all of those things probably do matter. And consultants who make their money off of doing all of those things are certainly going to tell you that those things matter. But the reality is you have to have a coherent narrative that you're selling to the people because people tend to vote on who they like better and whose story about the election they believe the most. Okay, so what are the narratives going to be? Generally speaking, for an incumbent president, the narrative is, stay the course, don't switch horses in midstream, you know, I've got this, and you don't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, okay? Obama's narrative in 2012, Osama bin Laden is dead and GM is alive, okay? Also, Romney is a scary, scary man who will, you know, force women into, I don't know, deny all access to birth control or something like that because reasons. It doesn't have to be true, okay? The narrative doesn't have to be true, it just has to be something that people believe. But the... The more you can say that there's a basis in truth on it, I think the more effective it's going, to, it's going to be. So that narrative, that don't, you know, stay the course, calm, keep calm and carry on narrative isn't going to work for Trump. And it's not necessarily because of coronavirus, although that would make it even harder. I don't think it was going to work for Trump before coronavirus because it does not fit with Trump's personality. Trump is a disruptor. He's an agent of chaos. And that has been his brand and his personality and his style for decades. He can't change his nature at this point. And one of the things that I would say for me, watching a lot of political campaigns, watching these things very, very closely, and even to a certain extent, I've worked on a couple of low-level campaigns, is that number one, you have to have a narrative. You have to have a compelling story. Number two, that story has to be at least authentic to who you are. You cannot run by not being yourself. 
So let's look at the Hillary Clinton campaign for 2016, because it's a pretty good case study on how not to run a, a campaign and how to lose an election you should win. Hillary Clinton did not have a compelling story about why she should be president. Her compelling story was, I'm a woman and I'm Hillary Clinton and I should be president. Okay, people didn't really buy that. Women in sufficient numbers didn't really buy that. So there was no narrative. And the other thing is, she didn't lean into her characteristics of who she is, right? Hillary Clinton's brand has a brand, okay? And her brand is that she's not necessarily the most likable person, okay? But she, but nobody's going to say, even people who don't like Hillary, no one's going to say she's incompetent, okay? Some people will say that she's crooked. Some people will say that she is, you know, nasty to her political opponents, that she's vindictive. Some people will say that she's immoral. Nobody has ever said that I am aware of that Hillary Clinton is actually incompetent at anything other than campaigning, because she's really bad at campaigning. But when it comes to actual governance, right, Hillary's narrative should have been, look, you may not like me. You may think that I'm not a nice person, but we live in a tough world. It's a challenging environment out there. It's a jungle out there. And you need somebody who's tough. You need somebody who's nasty. You need somebody who's going to get it done. And I'm going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Iran, and I'm going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with America's enemies because I've, I've done it before. And, you know, if you, don't, if you think they don't like me, wait until you see what America's enemies get, right? Hillary Clinton needed to go hardcore hawk. Hillary Clinton needed to go hardcore competence and basically hit Trump on being, you know, he's all talk, but he's going to knuckle under to any bully that shows up, right? Go the full Maggie Thatcher. Okay, Maggie Thatcher was also somebody who was not was was a female candidate, and this is why I think the whole Hillary loss because of sexism thing doesn't work. Okay, Maggie Thatcher was running almost forty years before Hillary in the UK, and she her nickname was the Iron Lady. Okay, Maggie Thatcher was not a warm and cuddly politician, but she won because basically she's like, look, I'm tough. I'm going to make the hard decisions. I'm going to not let Britain get walked on by countries like Argentina. I'm going to invade the Falklands if I have to. And you know what? We're we're in a, a rough neighborhood. The Cold War's serious business, and I'm a serious person. And, you know, you want somebody who's hard as nails like me. That's what Hillary should have gone for, okay? That's how you turn your weakness, your perceived weakness, into a strength. Most candidates have no idea how to brand themselves. But one thing that you can say about Trump, pivoting back to 2020, is that Trump understands his own brand fairly well. His brand is simple. His brand is consistent. You know, his brand is, I'm the rich businessman. I'm the person who's going to come in and fire people. And you don't have to like me, but, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm rich and I'm bombastic. And, you know, I'm gonna, going to, you know, be offensive and say what's in your face and all that. Like, that's his brand. He can't stop being who he is. Trump has the opposite problem of Hillary. Trump is maybe a little bit too authentic. Trump can't diversify really at any point. So he needs to figure out for this election how he's going to turn as an incumbent, turn that brand into a strength. Because running an election as a challenger, Trump's brand is a strength. Running as an incumbent, where you're trying to say, stick with me, being a disruptor, being an agent of chaos, being somebody who is, is anytime you're attacking somebody as the president, you're perceived as punching down. All of those things make Trump's job harder. Okay, so Trump is going to have some natural disadvantages selling himself. The easiest way to do that is by defining your opponent as crazy, as out of touch, and making the election a referendum on your opponent. And this is why Trump was telegraphing pretty much forever that he wanted Bernie. He wanted Bernie Sanders in the general election so, so badly because Bernie was somebody that Trump could brand easily. Crazy Bernie. Crazy Bernie the Democratic Socialist. You may not like me, but Bernie's going to totally trash the economy. Bernie wants to cause a revolution, and he's crazy. 
So you got to stick with me. That was going to be Trump's message against Bernie. They were fully prepared for that. That's what they wanted. The case is harder to make with Biden. The temptation for the Trump campaign is going to be, let's replay the Hillary playbook. But the Hillary playbook worked for them because people already didn't like Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden doesn't have that brand. Joe Biden's reservoir is that he's kind of the goofy uncle, but he's normal, right? And what's Biden, so pivoting to Biden for a second, what's Biden's message? We already kind of know what Biden's messaging is going to be because it's the messaging that's worked for him in the primary. Trump is terrible and Trump is abnormal and I'm normal. You don't get much more normal than me. So if you elect me, we're going to go back to normal. Everything is going to be the way it was. And, you know, we can all just kind of relax and calm down. And I know how to work across the aisle and I know how to get things done. And I know how to work with people that I don't agree with. And normal, normal, civil politics that everybody says they want. Okay, normal is very attractive. So you have a situation in which actually the, the challenger is running what should be the incumbent's type of campaign. The challenger is, is saying, a vote for me is a vote for the status quo. A vote for me is a vote for, you know, everybody sit back, relax, you know, times used to be not that bad, and we're going to go back to that, right? And there's not going to be chaos, and I'm not going to be on Twitter, and I'm not going to be doing all this stuff that you don't like, right? That's an attractive message. Because even people who are satisfied with Trump's job performance don't necessarily like the way he communicates, don't necessarily like the tweeting. If you could disaggregate Trump's support between the Trump administration and Trump himself, the administration is actually probably a little bit more popular even with his core supporters because the governance and the policy things that they like are actually happening by other people. And it is a lot of the personal style stuff with Trump people don't like. Now, the polling doesn't necessarily always reflect this. And I think one thing that's worth keeping in mind is that I don't know that Trump supporters are really being as honest with pollsters right now as they might have been in the past, because there's sort of a sense that everybody's out to get Trump. And so there's an internal versus an external discourse that's happening among Trump's, uh, among Trump supporters right now. Externally, nobody's going to say anything bad about him. In fact, they may even say, yeah, I kind of like the tweeting. No, I don't see any problems with him. He's great. People are going after him. He's doing all this stuff I like. Internally, conversation is different. Yeah, you know, I like the policies. I don't necessarily like the tweeting. Yeah, you know, I, I think the rhetoric, you know, there, there are a lot of things that he does that I wish he wouldn't do. There's always a caveat. There's always a but. I like, but Biden can tap into that and say, look, you're, you're not going to get all of these things that you don't like with me. Biden doesn't scare people. Biden doesn't come across as somebody who hates Republicans. Hillary Clinton came across as somebody who hated Republicans. That's a brand that she's had since 1998 when she talked about a vast right-wing conspiracy that was out to get her and her husband, if not from before that. Antipathy between Hillary Clinton and the Republican base has existed for a long time. And I'm not saying this is entirely Hillary's fault. You know, Hillary, if Hillary doesn't like Republicans, if Hillary hates Republicans, that is a hatred that has been reciprocated intensely since the early 1990s. But Biden doesn't have that. Biden doesn't have that dynamic. You know, Biden probably has a good personal relationship with a lot of people on the Hill. And he's talked about that. You know, he's talked about how he thinks that some of these people that he disagrees with are decent people. That is going to be reassuring. And Biden's not going to do some of the dumb things that Hillary's campaign didn't do. Biden's going to have an evangelical outreach person because he recognizes that even if Trump, even if he only gets Trump down from you know, 81% support among evangelicals, even if he holds that number, maybe down to 78%, that's a big difference, right? So Biden's going to try to reach out. Biden is being pulled to the left now. I don't expect that to last. So if you're a progressive right now and you're supporting Biden because you think he's been pulled to the left and he's going to stay there, don't buy it. 
right? And this is why Bernie's not dropping out, by the way, because he knows that. He knows full well that Biden's going to move to the center as soon as the primary is wrapped up. So there's no incentive for Bernie to drop out, and his people are pretty honest about this. They want as many delegates as possible going into the convention because they want to pull the platform of the Democratic Party as far to the left as possible. Okay, but Biden then is going to try to pivot as much to the center as he can. And so Biden is, is the toughest opponent of the realistic people who could have won the primary. I think Klobuchar was actually a nightmare for Trump if she had won the primary. I think she was far and away the most difficult person to run against because she has that persona that's more similar to Carly Fiorina. And Carly Fiorina is the debate person who in debates has given Trump the most difficulty out of anyone that I can remember. It's been Carly. And, and Klobuchar can put kind of come across as that sort of serious, no-nonsense, competent female figure who's not going to get riled, you can't get under her skin, and she's just going to counterpunch in a way that is, you know, not over the top, but is firm. And uh, Trump doesn't respond well to that at all. So Klobuchar would have been a nightmare. Biden is the next worst because, first of all, the attacks on Biden are not going to, they're going to bounce off. He's a known quantity. He has a brand. And so it's, it's hard for Trump to go straight at Biden and say he's crooked, he's corrupt, he's just as bad as Hillary. That's not going to work. That may work with some of his base, but Trump's base is not enough for him to win the election. He's got to not only hold the, the people that he won in 2016, but he's got to win back over some of the folks that went to Democrats in 2018. And he's got to find some new voters somewhere else because Biden is probably going to overperform Hillary just by virtue of not being Hillary in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. I say this because if you look at the Michigan primary, there are a lot of 2016 Sanders voters who voted for Biden. What does that tell you? Sanders is still in the race. He's still an option. That tells me that a certain percentage of Michigan Democrats weren't voting for Sanders in 2016. They were voting against Clinton. And so that means probably Biden starts with a higher floor in Michigan than what Hillary got. So Trump is going to have to find voters somewhere else, or he's going to have to try to convince voters that he's a better bet than Biden. Basically, there are two approaches that I see the Trump campaign being able to legitimately try to put together as narratives, and I expect them to do both. One, don't necessarily argue that Biden is crooked, but argue that you know, Biden has been pulled to the left by the primary and that the Biden administration is going to be staffed by the Sanders campaign. That's basically the argument you need to make. Now, the problem is that it's a little bit of a complicated argument, but the argument looks like this. Number one, you may think Joe's not a bad guy, but, you know, Sleepy Joe, which is the, the cognomen that they're hanging him with, you know, personally, I don't necessarily think that's the worst brand because after the last four years in politics, I feel like everybody kind of needs a nap, but okay, that's what they're going with. So, you know, he's he's not necessarily always paying attention. He's not necessarily keeping a close eye. And so under his nose, all these people on the left are going to creep in, right? With him comes an administration. And the argument needs to be that administration is going to be staffed by people who are well to the left of where Obama was. And if Bernie stays in and the, the platform gets pulled to the left then that platforms normally don't matter, but the Trump campaign is going to need something that they can hook into. And that's going to be it. They're going to say, look at all this crazy stuff that crazy Bernie is making Joe do. And look at all this crazy stuff that crazy Bernie and his people are going to make sleepy do Joe do if he gets elected, right? So that's going to be the first narrative from the Trump campaign. The problem is that narrative is a little bit complicated and it's, it's an easy one for Biden to counter punch on. Basically, that's a bunch of malarkey, you know, you don't trust Trump. And the problem is Trump doesn't have a lot of trust outside of his base, right? So that's a hard narrative to pull off because people instinctively, intuitively don't pay attention to policies. They pay attention to people. 
Okay, and so the problem is you can say Biden has been pulled to democratic socialism all you want, but people know Biden. He's a known quantity. It's a hard sell to make. That doesn't mean that they're not going to make it. Doesn't mean that maybe they can't get make some hay by doing it. Particularly if you can trap Joe into making some public statements that are supportive of that, because Biden is very concerned about losing Sanders voters. But that's um, that's one narrative. However, the thing that I think is probably going to end up being the main focus for the Trump campaign is China. Why do I say that? The one thing that Trump can say legitimately is. I was a China skeptic before all these other people. I was saying that we had problems with China, that China was, you know, doing us dirty a long time before anybody else. And guess what? I was right. He's going to blame the coronavirus on China. He's going to argue that we need to decouple and pull back from China. He's going to argue that Biden has historically been soft on China. And he's going to argue that you need to reelect Trump because only Trump will get tough on China. And only Trump is capable of you know, of pushing China and pulling our economy back from China and making sure that we don't have another one of these things that China is going to bring into the country. It is classic demonization of a foreign power. It is classic sort of externalization of uh, politics and giving people an external enemy. And the reason that this may work is because there's a lot of truth in that narrative. Number one, the Chinese government is responsible for the coronavirus. Anybody who tells you different is just... Okay, from an epidemiological perspective, that might not be the case, all right? Some epidemiologists might say it was going to spread anyway, all that kind of stuff. But you are not, but with all due respect to scientists, if you're not putting the blame on the Chinese government, okay, you are not looking at things through the proper policy lens, which is, number one, Chinese government has been host to several epidemics like this in the past. Number two, most of these epidemics have come because China has not been able to gain control over and ensure the health of its own domestic animal populations. Number three, the Chinese government lied about and covered up the effect of the coronavirus for a month. We know this as a fact. We've known this as a fact for a while. How much lead time would that extra month of knowing this is a thing and this is a possibility have given the rest of the world? How much would if China had responded aggressively the way Taiwan and South Korea did when they got the first reports of COVID-19 in their countries, if they'd responded aggressively to the doctors who are saying, look, we think this is another SARS type thing, how much would that have limited the spread? Now, yes, you can't fully judge the way a, a system responds to a crisis until after the fact. However, we know for a fact that authoritarian and totalitarian regimes don't respond well to crises like this. That their first response is to lie and to cover up. Look at Chernobyl. Look at the way the Soviet regime reacted after Chernobyl. Their first response wasn't, let's get people out of range of this. Their first response is, this would be a national embarrassment, and this would make us look bad, so we need to cover it up. And that is exactly the same response that you get with China. That is exactly the same response that you're getting with Iran. And that is exactly the same response that you're going to get with any authoritarian or totalitarian government. So yes, the Chinese government is responsible, at least in part, and I would say to a large degree, for the coronavirus. Number two, I think there's now a bipartisan consensus that we do need to reevaluate our relationship with China, that they have too much control over our corporations and, and the behavior of our corporations, that they're trying to limit free speech, that their human rights record is appalling. They've got millions of Muslims in camps in Xinjiang, you know, the, the crackdown on Hong Kong, all of these things the Chinese government is doing are problematic. They're problematic from a human rights perspective, but authoritarianism now has economic consequences for the rest of the world because they lie. You cannot trust what the Chinese government is telling you. You just cannot. They have a habit of lying. They have a pattern of covering things up. And this is not just a pattern that exists in the coronavirus.
you know, China will build all of these sort of Potemkin villages and, you know, Potemkin projects to bring people in and say, you know, look at the future and look at how great China is. And they're covering up the slum. They're, sent, they're literally deporting people out of urban areas. They've been doing this for decades. Okay, so we have a situation in which corporations in the United States, with the tacit support and consent of the United States government, have made substantial investments, have allowed critical elements of our supply line, etc., to go into a country that is fundamentally not trustworthy, that you fundamentally cannot trust the Chinese government because they will lie. It is what they do to their own people. They certainly do it to investors because they want that capital flowing in. And where there's not transparency, the, the market cannot appropriately price things. Okay, so insofar as there are systemic problems in the market that have been revealed by coronavirus, they mostly center around China. And so Trump has a certain amount of a point there. Now, is that going to be enough to get him reelected? I don't know. I really don't. Because, first of all, his own administration's response to the coronavirus is probably going to get criticized a good bit. Like I said, every government responds ineffectively in certain ways. And Trump's own personal tendencies to not be disciplined with communication have fed into that. Right? So the counter argument is, yeah, China may have been initially responsible, but everybody was wrong about China. Anybody's going to fix it. And you made the problems worse. Okay, so there is a counter argument to that. And again, it's very hard to get the American voter to really care about and focus on foreign policy. They're very focused on what's happening domestically. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know whether that argument penetrates. Maybe because there's been a lot about China and because you can you can really sort of make that argument in terms of, of the coronavirus. And it's, it's hard to argue against. So I don't know. I, I really don't know if that's going to be successful, but I think that's probably the best shot Trump has. Right now, particularly with coronavirus, with all that's going on, I would say Biden is a slight favorite, maybe 55-45. I think conservatives and Republicans are being way too sanguine about Trump getting reelected, you know, particularly those who are Trump supporters. I don't really, at, at this point, you know, I, I, I'm not super favorably inclined toward any of the Democrats, but I'm also not necessarily convinced that Trump is, is going to get my vote. He didn't in 2016, and I don't know that he's going to this time either. But so, you know, I say this as somebody who doesn't really have a dog in, in the fight, and I think that there are substi substantial and serious risks to the American body politic and our politics and all of that with both Trump and Biden. Trump, because he's going to be even more unchained in a second term, and he's probably, I'm, I'm very concerned about where personnel goes. I'm very concerned about some of the erratic decision-making that has been controlled by good staff and by good people around him to a degree in, in term one. How, what's that going to happen? What's going to happen with that in, in term two? I'm very concerned about Biden because I think there is some truth in the idea that people that are going to come into Biden's administration are going to be left of Obama. I think there is some truth in the idea that, you know, th that administration is going to be fairly policy-wise, fairly radical on issues that I care very deeply about. And the fact that Joe Biden's instincts on foreign policy are really bad. I mean, Joe Biden has been wrong about almost every foreign policy issue that he's thought about in the past, like, 30 years. So it's, you know, I'm not entirely convinced. Yes, Joe Biden is normal, but, like, he's not a good version of normal. He's, he's wrong on a lot of things. His instincts are bad. He's probably not going to be surrounded with the best people. He is better than a lot of the other alternatives in the Democratic Party, I can tell you that for certain. He is more likely to do deals with the Republicans. He is more likely to reach to actually reach across the aisle. And he's more likely to be successful in that than a lot of other Democratic uh, presidents. So it's not like he'd be a disaster. But, you know, it's just 
I am a little bit concerned about the type of people that Biden's going to be bringing with him. If I thought he was going to be mostly staffing his administration with moderate Democrats, that would be one thing. But, you know, I'm not entirely certain about that. And that makes me nervous. You know, if, if we were talking about the Joe Biden who supported the Hyde Amendment, the Joe Biden who was highlighting his Catholicism, the Joe Biden who would likely appoint someone reasonable, sensible, you know, somebody like a Katrina Lanta Sweat or some other uh, Democrat with a profile on this to be the director of the International Religious Freedom Office and, and continue a lot of, frankly, the good work that have happened on, and has happened under Sam Brown back on that issue. You know, if we were talking about a Joe Biden who was going to treat people with whom his party disagrees on social issues with a certain amount of respect, then I think we would be looking at a different situation. But I don't know that that's the Joe Biden we're going to get because Joe Biden tends to be a moderate in terms of his own party not in terms of the country as a whole. He wants to be right at the center of where the Democratic Party is. And as the Democratic Party evolves, so he evolves. So I just, I don't know what Joe we're going to get. I think there's a lot more uncertainty in that. I think it's, he's, he certainly is more within the bounds of the normal, um, but it might not be a great version of normal. So, you know, like I said, for, for me personally, I'm not sure where I fall on this election. But what I can tell you is that if I'm looking at it just as an outside observer, just as somebody who analyzes politics, I think Biden's got a slight edge. I would put it about 55-45 right now, all else being equal. Now, all else is not equal, right? We're in unprecedented waters with coronavirus. We have no idea what the next weeks and months are going to bring in terms of American life, let alone American politics. So it seems a little premature to speculate about some of this because there are giant unknowns that are associated with this pandemic. However, just based on what we know right now, all else being equal, I would say Joe Biden is a slight favorite, maybe 55% favorite with Trump at 45%. That's within the margin of, of things could, could dramatically change. A lot is going to be determined based on who Biden picks as a potential VP. And maybe we'll do a, a future episode looking at that maybe um, once we get a little bit closer in. But I think those, those questions could all be factors. And I think right now I would have to give him the slight edge, which means that, that Trump is going to be punching from behind. Now, the one thing that you can say about Trump is that he tends to do better when he's behind. So, you know, I think Democrats also should not be totally sanguine. Joe Biden has a tendency to also say stupid. Joe Biden is not the most disciplined communicator in the world. And this election is far from put away for them. There are still ways the Democratic Party can screw it up. And if we've learned anything over the past four years, it is that the Democratic Party is really, really good at losing situations that they should win. So never underestimate the ability of Democrats and the Democratic Party to fumble the football on the one-yard line and then have their opponents return it for a 99-yard score. So a lot of uncertainty. Nobody should go into this feeling confident that they're going to win. Nobody should go into this feeling like this thing is in the bag. Nobody should go into this saying, I think I definitely know what the outcome is going to be. Anybody who tells you they definitely know what the outcome is going to be is crazy, especially right now. But that is my take on where things are the types of narratives that the campaigns are likely to use to try to get ahead and where I think things might, might end up going when we actually get to the election. Okay, so that's going to be a wrap for this episode. We are running a little bit long. Right now, we're just about at 38 minutes. What I'm going to try to do over the next couple of weeks is I'm going to record a bunch of podcasts and we will release them kind of as, as we can. 
maybe try to up our release schedule because I'm assuming people are are bored and are going to want more content. By the way, please share this podcast on as many social media platforms as possible. I think right now with people being more quarantined with, you know, no sports, not a lot is happening in the news. Now's a good time for podcasts. Now's a good time to catch up on your favorite podcasts. And now now is a good time to spread out your word about your favorite podcast to all of your friends. So, you know, I want to lean into that. And so we're going to be producing a lot of more unique content, stuff that would be sort of more uh, think pieces previously. And I'm going to try to bring in some of my own knowledge and, and expertise and do stuff that's a little bit more of educational, right? So a lot of this has been more in what I'd call the analysis of current events. But I want to step back. I want to step back and, and do some analysis of bigger, more thematic things. You know, bring some of the political science stuff into a more popular audience. Probably do some podcasts on political Islam and explaining uh, some of that because that's a lot of research that I've done. Probably do some podcasts on Christianity and politics since that is sort of another area that I've, I've done research on and done a lot of focus on. But we're going to be stepping back a little bit. We're going to be taking this this time when not as much is happening, when there aren't as many current events to respond to immediately. And we're going to be taking this time to step back and, and do some more educational, foundational, principles-oriented stuff. So, you know, if you were ever thinking, man, I would really like to learn more about what's kind of behind politics, this might be a good time. And we're going to be trying to provide you that content. So with that being said... I think look for more podcasts, look for more sort of in-depth podcasts. If there are issues that you really want us to dive deep into that go beyond just the momentary headlines, if there are things that you've always been curious about in terms of politics, of how, how something works, now would be a good time because that's the type of content that I'm going to be tr- trying to roll out while we all sit through quarantine and wait to see what happens next. So, With that being said, again, please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Tell all your friends. Ratings help drive us up the rankings, which apparently that is important. Shares and views are really important for us because that is how I track the content that I'm going to be producing. So if you like an episode, make sure you share it with your friends because the more people who view an episode, the more shares we get, all those types of things. That tells me this was a popular episode. This was something that people really enjoyed. So please do that as well. And with all that being said, thank you again for listening. Everybody be well and, you know, follow follow the guidelines. Don't be a knucklehead. Don't hoard toilet paper, you know, Keep your distance appropriately, but I believe that all of you, my listeners, are reasonable human beings with with immodest amounts of common sense, so demonstrate that, particularly in this time. And I would also just say, as I said on Tuesday's podcast, now is not really the time for partisan recriminations about this thing. There's no red, red coronavirus or blue coronavirus. There's just coronavirus, and it's kind of the enemy of all of us. So, you know, let's try to pull together. Let's try to hope for the best in people that we were sniping at five minutes ago and people that we're going to be sniping at, you know, metaphorically 10 minutes from now. And, you know, this is this is a time where we need to try to come together as a country. I know it's hard, but I believe that we can, and I believe that we must, and I believe that we will. So with that being said, for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. <laughs>